letting me come and inviting me. This is very much uh, a work in progress and the chance to run it past people who are both interested and knowledgeable is a great privilege and essential for trying to develop a more sophisticated approach to what ASI and IC is the problems. I should say this is the one of the seminars you'll go to where they give instructions at the beginning, please be sure to turn on your mobile phone because we'd like a few mobile phones going off in the next hour just to remind us of bring us back to the theme of the the presentation. Um, the, the project uh, which is to try to understand what the mobile or the cell phone has, means to modern India grows out of the fascination that I guess we all, everyone has with the obviousness of the cell phone as it's developed in the last 10 years. Everyone I think has a, a cell phone story to tell and a cell phone image in their head. That one's easily Googleable if you're uh, Googling images of cell phone India, cell phone India Swami, you can get lots like him. Um, it's, it's pretty common India today when they wanted to do uh, an uh, embodiment of the modernization of rural India, of course, picked uh, the cell phones. What's interesting is that 30 years ago, when they were trying to do the same thing, it was the tractor that they were particularly focused on and that nice field of mustard in the background. Uh, these chaps, I think that's probably sugarcane they have in the background, but there's no mistake what they've got against their ears. So, uh, as I say, everyone, I think, has a mobile phone story. The way... <laughs> we are approaching it. I'm working with Asi Dorhon, who some of you may know, particularly if you've been to Australia. He's an anthropologist. He published a nice book last year on the boatmen of Varanasi, uh, who are Nishad's OBCs, I guess, if you're going to put them into a bureaucratic category. And Asi spent fairly long periods uh, with people on the ghats over the last 10 years. And of course, he has all sorts of mobile phone stories and the mobile phone has come to the Nishads on the Ghats in Varanasi in the time that he's been there. When he went there there were no mobile phones amongst the people he was working with. Um, now his latest story is that when he was there last September uh, one of his mates who's not very literate looked at his mobile phone and said you got Bluetooth and as he said what's Bluetooth? He said, Give it to me. And before very much had happened. Uh, Asi's phone was loaded with a Ganesh, a singing Ganesh screensaver and a whole lot of other really good stuff that his friend had Bluetoothed across to his phone and then he his friend proceeded to show him how to make Bluetooth work on his cell phone. And this is a guy who's working on the GOT and using the phone every day in the course of his work, which is making his work easier and perhaps more profitable. So we've, that's what the project ar arises from. What does this mean long term? Is this uh, something really rather revolutionary or is it just another kind of techie toy that will have its day like the hula hoop and then go away? Um, the way Asi and I are trying to work it, that he's the anthropologist and he'll try to work with more grassrootsy aspects of the questions, and I'm a kind of historian, political scientist, and I'll come down from the top. And the thing really has a, a kind of third leg to it, which involves Debjani, because we have a grant for a study of Dalit communication and politics, and there's a Maharashtrian aspect to this and a more literary aspect, I think it'd be fair to say, wouldn't it? The, so eventually, maybe all the dots will get connected up, but today I'm only talking about the, the kind of cell phone uh,
problems which have involved us and me. The task is, we see it, is to try to understand how the cell phone invasion of India in the last seven or eight years has happened and what it actually means. And we're, of course, flummoxed with how to try to conceptualize this vast and disparate enterprise which ranges from India's greatest capitalists, great elephants on the world uh, political and economic scene like the Ambani's, down to people like Assi's friends on the Ghats who are pulling boats for a living but also using their cell phones. How do you try to encompass all that and come up with a holistic understanding? The way we're working at the moment, and as I say this is very much work in progress, is First, to map the growth of the cell phone and to try to understand what that means. That is to explain how they've grown, and that's what I'll try to do in the next 25 minutes. The question I guess we're posing is the one, is the cell phone just another techie toy, or is it a real people changer, as profound as the printing press, or the wristwatch, or the automobile? And we have a hypothesis about that, and I'll share that with you in a, in a moment. In order to organize our attempts to tackle all these slippery questions, we've given ourselves uh, a working framework that does three things. First, we try to map just what has happened, what the, the quantity of cell phones is, but then we, uh, are going, we think we're going to attempt to break this project into analytical bits by looking at three different categories of people. The controllers, who we're saying are those who have radio frequency, which of course radio frequency spectrum is what the cell phone travels on, if you like. The controllers are people who, in quotation marks, own radio frequency uh, spectrum. And they may be either big industrialists who have bought it from the government, or they may be bureaucrats uh, in the government of India. Uh, but nevertheless, they're people who control this uh, wealthy, this very important resource, and of course a limited one. It's a scarce resource. Um, the second category we've called servers, partly because we can't think of a better name yet, and we wanted to keep the ERS endings all the way through, so if people come up with better ideas, we'd be grateful. But what we mean is, um, the people who earn livings from delivering radio frequency in some way through cell phone technology. And that, of course, extends to everyone from the people who build the thousands of cell phone towers, through the, to the repairers, to the agents, the marketers, the drummers, the advertising agents, and particularly the second-hand dealers, and if you like, the missionaries of the mobile <laughs> phone, who carry it into ever more remote corners of the country for some kind of reward. And I think we're suggesting that it's a little bit like the automobile industry as it grew in the 1920s. It has huge ramifications for occupations all, all around the industry. And the third category that we're looking at is the one that the anthropologist, I hope, will be particularly valuable on, are the users, the people who just want to have fun. They just want to communicate using their phones. But does using them and having this device make life rather different? What does it do, for example, for women? Does it allow families to keep their women under tighter control because they don't have to go out so much, because so many people can be brought in with a mobile phone call? Or does it allow women to get out more by being able to talk to people they might otherwise not have been able to talk to. I don't know, but I'd, again, we'd be very happy to have thoughts on that. Um, finally, we, we hypothesize at the moment about what all this means, and the hypothesis we're working on it is that this is indeed a transforming technology, a piece of equipment that in some circumstances even changes power equations. So that's, the, that's what we think is happening, and that's what I'd like to 
test on, on you all today. Um, let me begin by talking about the mapping exercise, just the growth alone. Um, the figures there captured, I guess, as well as anything. All of us who were, have been in India in the 1980s know how difficult it was before 1984 or 85 to place any kind of a phone call, whether it was across town or across the country. Um, the landlines were unreliable and there weren't many of them. Um, in 1987, uh, when the telecom department produced a 40th anniversary celebratory volume, they were very proud to uh, say <coughs> that there were three telephones for every thousand people in India at that time. Um, by 1999, after the cell phone revolution had begun, it starts in 92, 93, 94 around the world, that had got up to 23 phones per thousand people. But in January, according to the Telecom Regulatory Authority, uh, there were 510 phones for every thousand. That is, there were 582 million cell phone connections uh, on the books of the Telecom Regulatory Authority by January of, of this year. So it's a huge growth in a very uh, short space of time. The, uh, the graph probably makes it even more dramatic. What you see there is 1998. Um, this is millions of cell phones. It's about 23 million. And the little uh, black line there were the privately provided, that is, those provided by private capitalist enterprises. So most of the, cel the cell phones available in 98 were provided by Government of India uh, tele telephony undertakings. And of course, you can see how that begins to change as policy changes and it big capitalism becomes involved. Not a great deal happening till 2004, and then 2004, it gets quite exciting. By 2005, the Government of India provider is only a 50 percenter. And of course, today, the 500, this is 2009, 2010, we're up to about here, 580 million. So they're growing at the rate of 30 and 40 million a year, immense kind of uh, additions. And of course, most of the provider provision now is coming from private companies. So there's been a real switch and a real involvement of Indian capitalism in this way. Um, the, uh, what happened, I guess, is the question. And what didn't happen for such a long time? Why did it take such a long time to go from the 1987, three phones per thousand, to 2010, 550 odd phones per thousand. Um, phones until the 1980s, of course, were regarded quite literally by some governments of India as luxuries. The Janata government of 1977 to 79 said phones are a luxury, we, don't, we won't worry about them, they're very much on the, the back burner for us. And they were described in one of the planning documents as a, a luxury. Wireline phones were thought to be too difficult and far too expensive in a country that was 75% rural. Again, one of the reasons for uh, not going for landlines was that copper wire was valuable and it got stolen a lot. So if you couldn't get a connection, it may have been because somebody had actually chopped down the piece of copper wire joining your old black phone to the system and taken it away and sold it to the Kabariwala. The, uh, and that, of course, was just one small uh, uh, handicap to trying to put phones into the country. Um, phones are still regulated under the 1885 Act, much amended since, but it is a mark of 
the difficulty in taking a new technology and marrying it with uh, what's now a relatively ancient bureaucratic and legal system. The major changes began in the 1980s under Rajiv Gandhi and Sam Petroda, who I gather is an alumni of the University of Chicago. Is he? No, he's, he's a, a friend of the University of Chicago. Uh, one hopes so. He's a neighbor. May it be so, yeah. Um, it, the Petroda reforms brought in the public call offices, the PCOs, which enabled people to make regular phone calls, and that was a great step forward. But as we saw from the uh, graph, or from the, uh, the slide, it hadn't made much difference by 1987 to actually providing individual citizens with, uh, with cell phones. Um, the, the beginning of the whole cell phone story uh, is in Europe in the, er, well, in Japan, and then in Europe in the early 1990s. Uh, by 1993, the Narasimha Rao government realizes, these are just some of the abbreviations that one uh, keeps encountering in the discussion of this. It's a terrible industry for awful acronyms, and we have already have pages of the things. Um, the government of India, the Narasimha Rao government introduced a national telecom policy, that's uh, this one down here, uh, NTP 94, in 1994, which was attempting to take this clearly revolutionary or very important technology and make it available to more Indians and to open it out to uh, the private sector. So it was part of the whole reform movement of 1991 and it was thought that because this was a relatively new technology it would be particularly important for the liberalizing project that the Narasimha Rao government was uh, embarked on. Now that takes me to a discussion of the three sets of players that Asi and I have identified to try to uh, make sense of the cell phone story, and particularly to controllers. Because one of the reasons why the story uh, is so undramatic until here is the fact that the controllers in the first, the NTP of 94, the first national telecom policy, the controllers are the government of India and particularly its department of telecom. There are two rather nice accounts of what happened in bureaucratic politics in the 90s, one of them from Ashok Desai and the other from Rahul Mukherjee in an article in the JAS last May. Desai has a whole book on telecom policy in which he goes into the details and for both Mukherjee and Desai, the, the kind of wicked stepsister of this story of not a lot of development until 2004 is the Department of Telecom, which hangs on jealously to its privileges and manages to keep the technology and the capitalists who are itching to get out there and make money off it, keep it both in a straitjacket. Um, the NTPT of 1994 uh, allowed the Department of Telecom to retain a virtual monopoly over provision of individual cell phones for ordinary daily use. There were various ways in which the private sector could buy in for trunk calls, uh, but the actual domestic use, the most useful use of a cell phone, ringing your greengrocer, telling your wife that you were in the other field when she was to bring lunch, that kind of stuff, was not available to the private providers. So the Department of Telecom kept the, the lion's share, if you like. Now the reasons for that, as Mukherjee and Desai explain them, the, for retaining this virtual monopoly, there are a number of reasons. One was that the bureaucrats who devised the policy had a genuine belief that this was in the national interest. Um, they believed that the protection of India's strategic interests required the state 
to control anything as volatile as this kind of technology. Um, there was also an element of bureaucratic imperialism. It's ours, why should we give it over to a bunch of guys in the uh, private sector when we've got it and there are perks to be had in having it. It makes us important at the very least and of course at other levels there were charges of bribery and corruption. That it was a way of holding a valuable resource and accepting gratuities of one kind or another in return for favors in accessing that valuable resource. There was a th another reason alleged to be that the bureaucrats, some of them, believed that genuine equality, the equal distribution of this technology, depended on the state holding it and not the private sector. Um, what uh, the outcome was that the requirements on the bidders for the limited privileges that the private sector would get, the requirements on the bidders were made very, very stringent and far too far too high for anyone to actually make money within the terms that they were allowed to use the technology. So there were 12 winners in the 1994 bidding for chunks of this lovely piece of cheese called radio frequency technology for cellular use, but the 12, all of them, promised more than they were ever going to recoup under the terms that they had to operate. There may have been graft involved. The minister of the day, Sukram, of course, was uh, recently re-equipped reconvicted. He's been convicted of twice now, I think, of graft. Not in this particular connection, but in, the, in other connections. And of course the charges are that there was also graft involved in uh, this very uh, costly kind of project. The outcome, though, was that by 1999, when the second national telecom policy came along, by then all 12 of these uh, bidders was in debt to government institutions which it couldn't repay. Now when you're in debt to the government and you can't repay, you're at a pretty good position because the government pats you on the head usually and says, well that's all right, never mind, particularly when you're the Tatas and the Burlas and the Ambanis. You say, look, we can't do this, uh, you're going to have to find a way to make it sweeter for us. And governments say, well yes, I guess we are because we're certainly not going to foreclose on you because that wouldn't do us any good. Um, 99, of course, was a coalition era moment, you didn't want your biggest capitalist <coughs> screaming that the government didn't know how to deal with a valuable resource. The outcome was the National Telecom Policy of 1999, which freed up the spectrum and basically said to the original providers, what you've got, you can use in any way you like. You can carve it up, you can sell it as a cell phone to individual people, and you can charge what is remunerative. What we want is competition. <coughs> and that's when the uh, industry begins to take off as a number of competitors then begin to both tap this huge market once they're able to demonstrate how useful a cell phone can be but also genuinely to compete with each other because if you want the customers you've got to give them the best deal and it seems to be a very price sensitive uh, kind of business. Um, what was given in 99 uh, the holders were given uh, their earlier licenses free. The government basically wiped off any indemnities that it was seeking and said, look, you can devise your own business plans, go for your lives. And of course, at that point, they start to make money and the licenses they hold and the additional licenses that were then auctioned become very valuable. Uh, Small-time companies pick up licenses at that time. Again, 
uh, eliciting suggestions of graft because very small real estate companies were picking up at a low auction price specified by government valuable spectrum and then selling it on for five and six and seven times the value they had paid for it. So there were suggestions that this was kind of an inside deal and there are corruption cases still pending on that. Nevertheless, by the uh, by the mid-90s, the scene looks something like that. And I'm sorry, that's not a particularly reader-friendly chart. All it's meant to show is the 12 of the biggest players today. Um, they include, uh, and the owners, the Mittels, the Government of India, the Ambani's. Vodafone is SR. I didn't know that when I did the table. Tata are there, the Aditya Birla Group. The, Mr. Reddy, or Dr. Reddy, of the Apollo Hospitals is bought into the game. Uh, a Modi Group. and the two government of India's and then various others uh, are al also there as minor players. But as you can see, it's the big players are uh, Mittal, Government of India, Ambani, Essar, Tata, Birla, and well, Ready Hospitals as well, millions of subscribers. Um, the, uh, when the G2 uh, auction of Spectrum, this was all for G1, that is the first generation, which provides limited capacity on your phone. G2 allowed us to have, what, pictures and so on, and G3, of course, lets us stream television. The G3 auction of Spectrum is going on as we speak. It, I think the deadline was yesterday for bids through a, to an elaborate process for getting Spectrum to use for G3 technology. Vodafone have already announced that they will launch their G3 services by the end of the year. So the race to provide the even fancier kind of technology on the phone has already begun. The G2 licenses, which were auctioned in 2007, have also brought charges of graft. Again, the charge that the original auction had uh, chunks of spectrum being let out for relatively low sums, and the people who got it in the first round then immediately sold it on upwards for a big profit, and that there was money changing hands to allow this to happen. The communications minister, A. Raja, is uh, kind of facing lots of questions in the Lok Sabha over this. So there are huge sums involved. But what does, of course, seem to happen in all this is an amazing spread of the cell phone from this loosening up of, and the, uh, the competition and the proliferation that ensues from that. For those who see the liberalization of the Indian economy as a great success story, the telecom aspect of that story is seen as perhaps the greatest of, of all. The, uh, um, the controllers of the mobile phones are, of course, these big players in India's political economy. Uh, these are not little companies coming out of nowhere. These are the very biggest of India's capitalists who have seen the opportunity and have the, the muscle to do the sort of investment. So that's the story as we see it at the moment, or as much as we know, uh, Asi and I, about the controllers. Let me move, and I won't speak at such length about the other two, but uh, let me move to talk about the servers, um, the, uh, these sorts of people. Um, this is uh, a photo, I think one of us he's taken in Karlbog, um, and we've all seen similar things like it, but he's got lots of mobiles on the bench, he's taking them apart, moving the bits around, and if, again, if you go on the web, you get all sorts of miracle stories about um, travelers who have taken their phone into shops like this, thinking it was broken, and 20 minutes later, a young lad behind the counter has fixed it all up and got them back online again. And so the, uh, the servers, I think, are part of a proliferating industry, and as 
I said earlier, maybe a little bit like the automobile industry as it grew from the 1920s in other, in other places. You can't disseminate 582 million mobile phones without some people being employed to do it. Uh, I think it's a bit like either the automobile industry. The other one that attracted me as a, a kind of uh, uh, f former model was the spread of newspapers, small town newspapers in the 19th century. Um, if you look at the Irish examples that I'm aware of, Irish nationalism owed an awful lot to small town newspapers that grew after the 1850s as small but reliable printing presses got cheaper and a small town stationer in Ireland could afford to own a press for job printing. He did his job printing on his press and then he'd run a weekly news sheet and increasingly he'd run the work of Charles Stuart Parnell or any of the great kind of Fenian leaders. So Irish nationalism owes something to a proliferation of the printing press. Maybe there's a, a, a sort of parallel here where small-time operators are able both to make a living but also to propagate ideas and deal in communications as a result. So the people distributing cell phones may have more going for them and more of an interest in social and political change than simply the returns they get on their, their business of cell phone providers. That's one aspect. But there are so many facets to the provision of cell phones. There are the technicians who we, uh, we see here, um, but then there are the marketers and agents. If you go into a cell phone shop in anywhere in India, you'll usually find people hanging around who are either from Nokia or one of the radio frequency providers talking to the person who owns the shop, informing him of new products, new rates, because one of the problems is to keep the agents who actually sell the phones over the counter and sell the services over the counter right up to date with all the offers and gimmicks and gadgets that might allow your company to steal business from others. You're not only trying to enlarge the market, but you're also trying to take share away from others. So there are a lot of drummers, there are a lot of Willy Lomans in this game, I think, all over India who are putting their suitcases down in small town offices and saying, look, have I got a deal for you, Mr. Um, uh, well, in the case of the one in Allahabad, Mr. Allahabad Electronics, if this is the one that uh, Asi and I were looking at last year, have we got a deal for you? Um, I'll tell you a little bit about this particular man in a moment. So there are the, the agents, but there are also the, the repairers and the second-hand dealers. Huge second-hand markets in cell phones, uh, a passing on of cell phones, a repairing of cell phones. And with that, the towers. There are something like 100,000 towers now in India, and they're not very elaborate. They're just little steel structures with um, like old 1950s TV aerials stuck on them, but they are what's essential for getting the signal out and providing the coverage that we, Airtel, <coughs> are providing that's better than Vodafone is providing. So we've got to have them, and we've got to have them maintained. If you were reading the Wall Street Journal last week, you may have seen a story about the Taliban in Afghanistan warning uh, people who own cell phone towers in Afghanistan to turn them off at night because if they don't, they will kill them and blow up their towers. Because having them on at night, the Taliban, according to this story, believe, enables ordinary villagers to tell the security forces and the so-called NATO 
uh, force that Taliban are on the move very quickly, conveniently, and quietly. So the only way to get at that, you can't get at the individual cell phone user, but you can get at the guy who owns the tower, and you can threaten his life, and you can tell him to turn the tower off at night. So there are ways that big people can control this, but there are also ways that sometimes smaller people can get around it. But the, the people who build the towers seem to me particularly interesting. And we, Asi and I don't know anything about them at the moment, but it's one of the things we hope to learn a great deal more about. Um, what I think we do need to know a lot more about is how all of these roles develop and how they articulate or link up. It appears uh, that established shopkeepers, stationers, very often with technically attuned offspring, get into the business. For example, this particular story is kind of as you'd expect it. This business is owned by a Gupta family. The family has been dealing in commercial things, I guess grain trade and so on, for a number of probably generations. The young man who uh, actually owns the business is this chap here. He's got an MBA from Allahabad University and when his family said, well what are you going to do now? Would you like to come into the business? He said, no, I'd like to start on my own. So they bankrolled him to set up this little shop and they said, well what do you want to do? And he said, well I think cell phones and two-wheelers, scooters and motorbikes. And so that's what in fact uh, he does. He's, uh, he sells scooters and motorbikes. So they're the kind of two trendy consumer goods that draw lots of people into the shop. And when we were uh, did a, a little bit of time with him last year, he had a regular flow through of people talking about phones. He sold a 6,000 rupee phone uh, one morning while we were in the shop. And there's a regular flow of people asking about plans and cards and so on. So he's an educator as well as a, as well as a businessman. The other business we looked at, and I don't have a slide of them on this particular show, was a little bit different, also in Allahabad. But the business was owned by a Yadav family who had started out as a, a stationers and DSL provider, so they were doing uh, fast courier services, photocopying, uh, paper and pens and so on. And they were, by this stage, they were seemed to be in partnership with a Muslim family because there were a number of young Muslim guys on the counter. So they were slightly different, had a slightly different origin. But it underlined for us another aspect, which again Asi intends to follow up, that the major second-hand dealership for cell phones, or one of the major areas in Allahabad, is in the Muslim bazaar. And Muslim uh, artisans seem to have taken to the cell phone, I guess in a, a way as you might expect, people who have been working in locks and brass and these kinds of crafts for generations might see the cell phone as something that was part of their, uh, within their capacity. So the, apparently the Muslim market is the best place in Allahabad to get all sorts of cell phone repairs done and also to get cheap second-hand phones. Um, we also think, or it's my um, belief, that somewhere in the uh, lower socioeconomic classes, there are opportunities here. And the model I'm working off, it, people who know Australia will know that one of the biggest cell phone providers in Australia was a Turkish guy called Crazy, who called his business Crazy John's. And Crazy John had come to Australia as a kid of 14 or 15 from Turkey with his family. He lived in an outer suburb of Melbourne. And when the cell phone business began in the 91, 92, 93, he saw that his relatives, um, Turkish and Lebanese people and neighbors living around him wanted to ring home. He began to scoop up second-hand cell phones, repair them, sell them on, and he built a business when he died two or three years ago was worth 40 or 50 million Australian dollars. It, one of, I think, the second or third largest 
uh, Australian cell phone provider, uh, who had survived the kind of electronic bubble of 1998-99 when some of Australia's biggest players lost their shirts on cell phones, but Crazy John didn't. He was clearly a much more astute uh, kind of operator with a much more realistic idea of where his business was. Well, I, we think that there are probably Dalit providers, a little bit like Crazy John, who are beginning to make the cell phone uh, a way uh, of pogo sticking into a new social class, and that's something that will bear investigation. Um, when I was in Philadelphia for the AAS, uh, I had a cup of tea with Devesh Kapoor, who said his center in Philadelphia has just done a 20,000 participant survey of Dalit households in UP, and their finding was that 30% of those households now had cell phones, and this was carried out in the second half of last year. So there's a kind of confirmation there. There's also an interesting article in one of the latest EPWs on Dalit entrepreneurship. So I think it's an interesting area which we, with luck, will be able to explore a little more. Finally, the users, the people who just want to have fun with their cell phones. The phone, though, is not just a phone. It's not just for making phone calls. It's, um, it's also for uh, making music, because you have all your uh, musical stuff on it. The boatmen love the music, uh, according to Asi. It's a pocket torch, which is wonderful in the land of the load shed. Um, and it, it's a camera. And most important of all, it's a camera. And the camera is one of the aspects that makes the cell phone, I think, as potent in changing power relationships a little bit, as we think it is. Um, it's, more, it's much more of the phone than making uh, phone calls. Now, you've got to kind of strike a balance here, because some of the literature about cell phones elsewhere in the world gets very romantic and enthusiastic about the liberating potential of the mobile phone, how it really is going to transform everybody's lives. I don't believe quite that, but I do think it's got a great potency in particular circumstances. Um, Asi has a story in his fieldwork which is, uh, I think, illustrates both the potential and the limitations. He had a friend whose brother committed suicide, and the friend took pictures of the suicide, I think the man hanged himself, took pictures so that when he had to report it to the police, he would have a legitimate uh, documented story to tell, and the police would not then be able to accuse him of murder or some other nefarious practice and set him up for bribery. So this man felt that because he had a record, he had something that was going to give him documentation to avoid some of the worst excesses of having to deal with the bureaucracy. So that's a story that uh, Asi learned of and saw the, saw the, the actual um, photos. Uh, very different um, but similar would be all the other sorts of stories you can imagine where power holders are doing dreadful things to less powerful people. But now, with the cell phone, everyone with a cell phone is a potential Rodney King documentary maker. You know, you don't have to be, 19, it's not 1992 in Los Angeles, you don't have to be lucky with somebody coming by with a great video camera taking a videotape, making sure the cops don't bust it up after you've taken it, getting it to a TV station who agrees to run it. Now you run your cell phone, you uplink it, and even if the landlord smashes your phone, you can say, well, that's tough, it's on YouTube, it's been there for 10 minutes. Uh, now, whether this is being done uh, extensively, I don't know, but there's certainly some interesting stuff on the web coming out of cell phones in this way. Um, the ability to get round power holders without having to physically move around them is, I think, potentially very important. And we, there are, of course, all sorts of other social uses, which I don't want to touch on today. The whole question of what the cell phone does for women in various communities is one that 
certainly bears uh, examining. There's a little bit of work, I think, being done on it already, and perhaps people here know much more about it. Um, that's an aspect that we don't know much about at the moment, but eventually I hope we will know more. Um, the, uh, the, the social aspects then are something I, I don't want to, or don't intend to go into now. My final point would be about the political potential of this. We think that some of the political efficacy of the cell phone is perhaps exemplified in uh, the, uh, uh, the rise of the BSP and its victory in the 2007 election. What you see on the screen is uh, the BSP's attempt to run a magazine, not very successful, at Medcar today, uh, trying to imitate India today with, of course, uh, Mayavati on the front. Um, the BSP, as you know, has always had trouble with the media. Um, the Mayavati would say that the Manavadi media uh, has always been hostile to the BSP, and she's been hostile to it. And from what one can see, she won the 2007 election with almost no positive assistance from the mainstream print or televisual media. But they won the first outright majority in the UP Assembly for more than 40 years, a stunning sort of victory. Um, put together, I think, partly as a result of the mobile phone, not, not, we don't, one wouldn't want to ascribe the whole of it to, but the strength of the old BSP under Kanchi Ram was always said to be the fact that he pedaled around on a bicycle originally to network and grassroots the organization. Um, Mr. Mishra, S.C. Mishra, who took on the Brahmin mobilization that went with the campaign, similarly did district meeting after district meeting to tell the story. Now these meetings, it appears, were set up or facilitated by use of mobile phones, that BSP organizers were given mobiles by the organization, which they were able to be in regular voice communication with top brass. So if the meeting was going to be disrupted, you could blow the whistle using the mobile phone. If the meeting was going to be late, you could tell the crowd to come later. Um, if the meeting was particularly good, you could take some pictures of it and get it up on the website. Um, the, the mobile, as an organizing tool for that campaign, we think has been particularly influential. The kind of confirmation we've got at the moment is only from journalists who covered the campaign who are saying, oh yeah, they, they did it a lot, but we didn't kind of ask because everybody's got a mobile phone now and so, so what? I think there's more to it than simply so what. I think the mobile organized the mass message nature of the uh, BSP campaign, certainly facilitated the Brahmin Dalit alliance, which the mainstream media wasn't very interested in, uh, certainly in promoting. It also helped to organize getting a Dalit vote out. The CSDS figures show 80% of Dalits voted in that election. Terrific kind of turnout. Um, the, it was a way of getting around the physical control that up till now dominant groups were able to uh, exercise in, in villages. Um, finally, the mobile, I think, helps to uh, ensure or promote peaceful elections because if there's trouble at a polling booth either the returning officer or somebody even out under the trees a hundred meters away can get on the line to the district election commissioner and the flying squad of central reserve police or whoever's doing that work can be at the polling booth in time to stop trouble and keep the election going uh, steadily if people are being intimidated at the polls similarly message can be gotten quickly and reliably to people who might have an interest in uh, stopping such misuse of power. Um, the mobile allowed the BSP's knowledge of the grassroots, which as I say Kanchi Ram had so prided himself on, to be exploited more effectively than it could ever have been exploited before. Um, so to me that's why this is an example of the phone as a people-changing 
uh, nature. I mean, when you I go when we were writing this, I began to think about all the old grade B westerns that we used to watch as kids. And you know, the the honest gunslinger would come into town and pull out his Colt 45, and he'd say, "I've got the old equalizer here now." Well, maybe the mobile phone is the old equalizer. You know, you wear it in a little pouch on your hip. Instead of shooting people with it, you take pictures of them and put them up on YouTube. So, it's that kind of an old equalizer that perhaps we're talking about. So, to, to finish up. The hypothesis we're working on at the moment is that, um, oh, just have a look at that election map of 2007, at what an amazing result it was. The dark blue, of course, is the BSP. Um, the, our hypothesis at the moment is that the, mo the mobile brings about what, for want of a better term, I'd call a Brodel moment. Uh, Brodel at one point writes of the boundary between possibility and impossibility between what can be attained and what remains denied to people at particular times in history, and of the importance of the moment when there is an extension of the limit of possibility, an extension of the limit of possibility, which I think is what the mobile does. Perhaps the mobile is just that. The cell phone draws India's population into relations with a record-keeping capitalist state more comprehensively than any previous mechanism or technology. You can now, if you own a mobile phone, get your NREGS payment through your bank on your mobile phone. You no longer have to have a, a kind of a doubtful middleman actually give you rupees. You can have it go into your bank account and you on your mobile phone are informed that it's in your bank account. By itself, it seems to me, the mobile does not overturn power structures. Goodness knows the Ambani's and the Mittels and the Reddies control the radio frequency spectrum. It doesn't iron out inequality. But as Brodel wrote of the improvements in road transport 180 years ago, it does make conditions faster, more efficient, and, and this is the matter of hope and promise, it seems to me, faster, more efficient, and more democratic. So maybe that's what the mobile phone is doing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you.